Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing, and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. You know, it seems kind of funny when you read that. It's like, God remembered Noah? I mean, it's like, did he forget about him? I was, you know, it's like, where did I put that ark? I know there's these guys around here somewhere. You know, I mean, you, you kind of, if you read it that, it's kind of like, what do you mean God remembered Noah? Well, that word remembered, it's, it's a, there's a term for it. It's called an anthropomorphism anthropomorphism. I kind of spread it out in my notes because I'm like, I'm going to mess it up. But basically what that means, it's a non-literal use of human language to describe God because there's certain characteristics of God. How do you describe him? Well, the only way you can is in human terms, right? Because we only have the human language. And so what does it mean that God remembered Noah? Well, God didn't forget Noah. Let me just, let's just get it out there. God didn't forget. God has not forgotten you. Maybe sometimes you feel like God's forgotten you. He's not forgotten you. But what he's really... What 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 the Bible is really referring to is now after many months of Noah just sitting there in the ark, you know, I mean, God had spoken to him, told him to go in the ark, and then the, you know, close in, and then the, the storm and all this stuff, and we're going to find out today that Noah's going to be on the ark for about a year, actually over a year. Um, and so as he's waiting there, many months are passing by, and God's not speaking to Noah. At least we don't read that in scriptures. But now he's, it's like now he's once more actively working on Noah and all mankind that's there on the ark and the all human or animal kingdom. Now he's starting to do something. What is he doing? The flood is starting to subside. God is at work. Even though Noah may not be seeing it right now, God remembered Noah and he's at work. Sometimes in our own lives, you know. We don't see God doing things, but I can guarantee God is working in each one of our lives. And it says here, and God made a wind to pass over the earth. Now, wind, like rain, would have probably been a new phenomena for Noah and those on the ark. Um, before the flood, a lot of scientists believed that the, that the planet was a lot more moderate temperature, uh, more of a constant temperature, and with a constant temperature, it would have resulted probably in gentle breezes, if anything. But now the world has changed totally. And, uh, you know, this, uh, if there was, in fact, this uh, vapor canopy, which a lot of people believe there was, a vapor canopy, you know, the sun's rays are kind of muted coming through. Uh, but now if that's gone, now, now that <clears> the <throat> sun is just beaming down on the land or beaming down on the water anyways, and, you know, things are warming up. And uh, as the atmosphere warms, if you know, it's funny. I'm like, we're driving up to Duluth on Friday. We go see Teresa's mom and her, and her husband. And uh, I brought my notes with me, and I'm like, how does, so, you know, you ever, I don't have, I don't have an Apple phone, so I don't have that lady, whatever that lady's name is, Alexi or something like that? No. Serious? Are you serious? Oh, serious. okay, anyways. Uh, but I have Google, right? So I can say, hi, Google. And, it, and she's a lady, and she sounds very nice. And so I said, hey, Google, how does wind form? And then, so she gave me this weird answer, and I'm like, oh, man. So then I, like, maybe I rephrase my question. Finally, it, it's like, it must learn the question because it's like, man, you're a real dummy. So it sent me to this children's site 
That's that, and it's like, well, this is what happens. Land warms and the atmosphere warms, and when when warm when the atmosphere warms, the, the air starts warming, and the air goes up. It rises, and then cool air moves in to replace that warm air, and that is what happens. The wind starts blowing. So I, I'm like, thanks a lot. I feel, but it helped for me, anyways. So, anyways, God made a wind to blow. Uh, to pass over the earth, and so if you know, you know, we get the end of end of like the snow, and it gets windy, or you had a lot of rain, you get wind, things start drying up, and there's a lot of evaporation taking place, and so this is what's happening, and then the Bible says, and then the waters subsided. You got to think of all that water. Where did all that water go? It's interesting in Psalm uh, 104. There's a passage in Psalm 104 that that talks about uh, the flood, actually. And in verses 6 through 9, I'm just going to read it. You don't need to turn there. You can, but you don't need to turn there. It's Psalm 104, verses 6 through 9. He's talking about the Lord with the flood. He says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. Covered the earth with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. And Dr. Henry Morris of the Institute for Creation Research, he has a comment here on this. He says, as a result of the water subsiding, the phenomena described in Psalm 104 verses 6 through 9 began to take place. So then he starts to describe. He says, The earth's crust collapsed deep into the previous subterranean reservoir chambers, forming the present ocean basin. So, you know, the Bible says that the, the, the fountains of the deep, you know, they broke up, they burst up. And so there's these reservoirs of whatever they were under the ground. Now there's a cavity there. And so the earth's crust, after that water's come up, now this, the earth's crust collapsed into them. And he's, and he's saying that's what formed the present ocean basins. It says, and then causing further extrusions of magmas around the peripheries and through openings in the floors. If you don't know what an extrusion is, um, if you ever played with Play-Doh, and you put it into those little things, and then you squeezed it, and then you, know, you get little star things that come out. That's an extrusion. It's something's getting squeezed out every morning. Hopefully, every morning you guys are brushing your teeth. Um, at least Sunday mornings, hopefully you are. But you know, when you're squeezing your toothpaste, you're extruding out toothpaste um, through the tube. Well, that's what he's talking about. As that as that crust is collapsing, now there's this there's the the magma, the the lava, the molten stuff is starting to come up. And of course, you get that ring of fire right around the Pacific Ocean basin. And so he says, then he says, the light sediments in the sea troughs were forced upward to form mountain ranges and plateaus. He says, thus the waters originally stored in the vapor canopy and the subterranean chambers are now, are now stored mainly in the present ocean basins after the vast topographic adjustments and terminated following the flood. And then he makes a comment here, which I think I mentioned last week. These waters would be sufficient to cover a smooth earth to a depth of almost two miles. So that water's there, but it's mainly in the ocean basins. Now, there's another guy by the name of Dr. Walter Brown. He's got a PhD. I mentioned him last week as well. He believes that the Grand Canyon, that the, that the Grand Canyon formed when, as this water was receding, that there was a very, very large lake in that region, and uh, the waters breached and started rushing through, and it created 
created the Grand Canyon um, as a result of that water receding. And a lot of people say, no, 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 you know, it took millions and millions of years. Um, Dr. Rick Oliver, who's been to our church before, he's a friend of ours, um, he was on Mount St. Helens um, actually before and after the eruption of Mount St. Helens in 1980. And he's witnessed, and, and by the way, by the time he was not a believer, he was an atheist. And uh, he witnessed with his own eyes um, a canyon forming, a mini Grand Canyon forming on Mount St. Helens as a result of all the, the, the activity that took place there. And that was part of why he became a believer in Jesus Christ fascinating that a canyon could be formed just literally overnight and so anyway so that's what uh, dr henry morris and uh, dr walter brown were saying about that well let's go on verse 2 of genesis chapter 8 the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and I don't know about you, but I, every time I read that, I think of Credence Clearwater Revival. Who'll stop the rain? Well, let's see. The Lord stopped the rain. Um, okay, if you're younger, you maybe you don't understand. That, that was one of, anyways, I won't go there. That's just the way I think. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the two sources of the flood have now stopped there in verse 2. Those, those pressurized, if they were pressurized water reservoirs, whatever they were below the earth's crust that violently burst through, that pressure is now released and it's lowered. Uh, so that water stopped. The vapor canopy, if there was in fact a vapor canopy around the earth, um, all that condensated and so all that came down. So now all that activity has finally ceased and then, so now the water is starting to recede. Verse 3, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tump month, excuse me, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, I don't know about you, but does that strike you kind of like, I wonder why we're told specifically what dates all these things happened. Um, you know, is there some significance to that? And it mentions on the seventh month, uh, the 17th day of the month, that the ark finally rested on the mountains of Arafat. No, I mean Ararat, sorry. Um, but the seventh month described here was based on their civil calendar. Um, that was the calendar that the Jews had um, from in the beginning, basically. But after the exodus of the children of, Egypt, of, of Israel from Egypt... As they were in uh, Mount, as they were in the wilderness, they were at Mount Sinai. God instituted a new calendar for the children of Israel. Uh, it was after the Exodus that God would tell Moses that 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 month, which happens to be in the seventh month, would now be their first month. It was the month of Abib, and it would it was basically the start of their ecclesiastical calendar. That's when their festivals would start. Uh, so he, basically, the, the seventh month now became the first month. Um, well, based on their new calendar that the Lord would give them in Exodus, uh, the 14th day of the first month on the new calendar, which would have formerly been the 14th day on the seventh month, was the day that the Passover takes place. And uh, as you know from scriptures, Jesus Christ was crucified on the Passover. Three days later, he rose again from the dead on the 17th of the first month, which happens to be the 17th of the seventh month when uh, the ark rested on Ararat. Isn't that interesting? 
So it happens to be the same day when the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, Ararat, sorry, um, which is basically a start of a new beginning, right? A new beginning for for Noah, for his family, for the for the world. And uh, you know, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that was a new beginning for each one of us who have a relationship with Jesus. Well, where are the mountains of Ararat? Well, there's a range. There are a range of mountains in Armenia. Notice he doesn't say that it landed on Mount Ararat, but on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, this is a range of mountains in Armenia bordering Turkey. Mount Ararat. There's one actually named Mount Ararat, which is in eastern Turkey near the border of Armenia and Iran. And uh, um, on that mountain, there have been over the years many, many sightings of people believe. Some people have even claimed to have seen the ark, and they've claimed to take pieces of the ark. Um, I'm going to list a few ark sightings. In 275 BC, there was a guy by the name of Barossus. He was a Babylonian historian, and he wrote, But of this ship that grounded in Armenia, some part still remains in the mountains, and some get pitch from the ship by scraping it off. So there was this ship up in the mountains in Armenia, and they would go up there, and they would actually scrape some of that pitch off off the thing. In 75 AD, Josephus said that the locals collected relics from the ark and showed them off to his very day. He also said all the ancient historians he knew of wrote about the ark. In 180 AD, Theophilus of Antioch wrote, the remains of the ark are to this day to be seen in the mountains. An elderly Armenian man in America said that as a boy, he visited the ark with his father and three atheistic scientists in 1856. Their goal was to disprove the ark's existence, but they found it and became so enraged they tried to destroy it, but they could not because it was too big and had petrified. In 1918, one of the atheistic scientists, an Englishman, admitted on his deathbed that the whole story was true. It wasn't made up. In 1876, a distinguished British statement and author, Viscount James Bryce, climbed Ararat and reported finding a four-foot-long piece of hand-tooled timber at an altitude of more than 13,000 feet. Six Turkish soldiers claimed to see the Ark in 1916. In the early part of the 20th century, a Russian aviator named Vladimir Rukovitsky claimed the discovery of of Noah's Ark. He was stationed in southern Russia near the Turkish border in Mount Ararat. As he tested a plane, he and his co-pilot flew over Ararat and discovered on the edge of a glacier what he described as a boat the size of a battleship. He said it was partially submerged in a lake, and he could see there was an opening for a door nearly 20 feet square. But the door was missing. Rokovitsky told his commanding officer and an, and an expedition was dispatched to find the Ark and photograph it. The report was forwarded to the Tsar, uh, and of course he was all excited, but as he was, the Tsar was soon overthrown, and the photos and the report perished. Remember that was in the Russian Revolution there was when that happened. So in 1936... A young British archaeologist named Hardwick Knight hiked across Ararat and discovered interlocking hand-tooled timbers at a height of 14,000 feet. And then during World War II, two pilots saw and photographed something they believed was the Ark on Mount Ararat. And that's just going up into World War II. There's, since there, there's been other things where they go, I think, you know, they see stuff. Now, the interesting thing is, 
they, the, the, some of the different sightings have been at different altitudes on the mountain, different places on Mount Ararat. And so it's like, well, what's going on? Well, all I think is it probably broke up, maybe with glacier activity or whatever, and some of it's just kind of transferred on the mountain, but who knows. Um, but we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But verse 6, it says, So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him any more. Again, when you read that, you go like, why are we told specifically a raven and a dove? What's the significance of these birds? I I don't know exactly. Okay, I'll just be up front with you. But a raven is an unclean bird. And it goes out, and it was probably feeding on whatever carcasses or whatever animals or people, whatever is floating on the water, um, that's what it eats. And so it's going out, and, it, and it's, it's probably coming back to the ark because it didn't go into the ark, but it's probably coming back and landing and resting on the ark and going back out and eating and stuff and kind of going around. So Noah does that, and uh, I guess that maybe doesn't satisfy his curiosity. So he gets a dove, and a dove is a clean bird. And uh, he sends the dove out, uh, and it's interesting, he says he sends it out from himself, sends out this dove, and the dove returns to him, and he takes it back in. Um, this dove goes out, but it finds no resting place in the world and comes back to the ark, and Noah receives the dove back into the ark with him. Now, I've heard different commentaries about the doves and the ravens and stuff, and, and uh, the only thing I can think of is, you know, this raven that goes out, and uh, it's feeding off dead things in the world. And, uh, you know, people sometimes like that. Do we, you know, as Christians, are we feeding off dead things in the world or are we like the dove? You know, we're flying around. We, we, this, this world's not our home. There's no resting place for us. And so we find no rest here, so we come back to the ark. We come back to, you know, as I said earlier last week, and we'll look at it again this week, the ark is a type of Christ. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Well, the next time Noah sends out the dove, it returns with an olive branch or an olive leaf in her mouth. So by this time, Noah knows, hey, the, the, the water's receded enough that the, the olive trees are starting to sprout up. And, and uh, you know, those seeds, they probably, you know, in that heat and the warm and, the, you know, they're starting to germinate and getting trees are starting to grow. Um, so he knows, okay, things are getting, you know, the water's going down that much lower. It's interesting, the dove in scripture, it's always portrayed as a humble and lowly bird, right? It's not a proud, like the peacock, it's just a, just a humble, simple, lowly bird. And the dove is the one that finds the olive branch, or olive leaf, right? An olive leaf is a symbol of peace. Jesus said in Matthew ten sixteen, Behold, I sent you out as sheep, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise of serpents and harmless as doves. You know, and sometimes we, you know, if you're in a situation with another person and, you know, there's 
conflict. In fact, Luke even mentioned it when he was praying. You know, it, sometimes we have conflict with other people, and, and, and that's so true. Even believers can have conflicts with other believers. And, you know, you, you want to get peace into the situation. Well, you know how to get peace is to be humble. Somebody needs to humble themselves. And if you're the mature person, you're going to be the one that will humble yourself. And, and you'd be amazed, you know, that, that God will bring that peace. That peace will come. Anyways, so significance, there's probably other much more deeper spiritual significance. But anyways, we'll move on from there. Verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. So as I was telling the kids, Noah was in the ark for over a year. In fact, a total of 371 days. Verse 15. Then, Noah, then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply in the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to their families went out of the ark. Now, in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, there's kind of a clue to Noah's character, his character, his relationship with the Lord. And in Genesis 6.22, we're told here, it says, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And we touched on that when we were in chapter 6. Noah obeyed God completely. And the Bible mentions it. It's significant. The Bible mentions Noah's obedience to the Lord in chapter 6. In chapter 7, verse 5, it's like reiterated. It says, and Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was, he heard the Lord and he obeyed the Lord. And uh, now you think, okay, so he sent out this raven. It's flying around. You know, that didn't work. He sends out the dove. The dove comes back. But, you know, after a while, the dove's gone. It's, it's obviously found a place. And so Noah knows that the water's low enough that there's trees at least growing on the ground. And, and you would think he would like, oh, man, I guess it's okay. You know, I guess we can go. But notice that Noah didn't leave. He didn't leave until God commanded him to go. That's obedience. Because sometimes, you know, we, it's like, you know, we just think, okay, I think in my mind everything's right. I'm just going to go for it. But, you know, so many times we just need to wait and let the Lord tell us go instead of assuming and what's interesting about the Lord telling Noah to go, you know, it was the Lord that invited Noah to come into the ark. God was in the ark with Noah. Isn't that interesting? Uh, or was in the ark and inviting Noah to come in to that place of comfort and rest. And I mentioned earlier that the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. He's a type of Christ, the ark is. And uh, so Noah was invited to come into that ark, into that place of rest and comfort. And Jesus said, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you know, if you've given your heart to the Lord, maybe maybe you know you you were an unbeliever and you became a believer, or maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you walked away from the Lord or whatever. At some point, you know, you rededicated your life to the Lord, whatever. You know that experience when you come into that come into that relationship with the Lord. It's like 
I'm, I'm in a place of rest. Man, the Lord loves me, and you, you bask in his love, and you, you, just, you just finally, you've, you've found your home, you know, and it's, it's such a great time, and, and it's a needful time in each one of our lives as believers, a time of just rest and comfort. And Noah did that. He went into the ark, and he was resting. He was safe in the ark. But now the Lord is telling Noah, hey, Noah, go out of the ark. Be fruitful and multiply. Jesus not only told his disciples, come to me, all you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But in Matthew 28, 19, he told his disciples, he said, go. At first he said, come. Now he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, the Lord didn't just save Noah to stay in the ark. I mean, he didn't stay in the ark the rest of his life, right? This is your new home, Noah, you and all the animals and everything. And this is, your, you know, he said there was a time and it was a needed time for him to be in there to rest, to ride out the storm. And there's a time when you come to faith in the Lord. It's, it's good to just, you know, hunker down, just enjoy the, the rest that the Lord gives you, you know, grow in your relationship with him. But there does come a time. He didn't just save you to take you to heaven. You got to understand that. He now wants you and me to go out to be spiritually fruitful and to spiritually multiply. There's a a time to just rest as a believer and enjoy that relationship, but there's also time to go and start um, multiplying yourself, making disciples of others around you. Now, this is curious, and maybe you've thought about this. Why in the world did God have the ark rest in the mountains of Ararat? Why didn't he have him in the plain of Shiloh? Or, you know, why, why, why not in some flat place where everybody eventually could come and look at, look at the ark, you know? Um, Mount Ararat, by the way, the, the, the summit is 17,250 feet. Now, it didn't mean that the ark's like teetering on the, you know, on the top of it, but it's a, people have sighted around 14,000 feet in one place, 13 in another. Um, so it's way up there on this mountain. Why did God do that? Mount Ararat, by the way, and those mountains around there, they're geologically unstable. And they're also, that whole region is politically unstable. Why did God have them rest in the mountains of Ararat, or the ark rest in the mountains of Ararat? You know, Noah and his family, they probably had to leave that elevation. They probably couldn't just hang out there. Um, they wouldn't have the ability to cannibalize the ark. You know, if the ark had landed on a plane, they're like, hey, we've got some really good wood. <laughs> we can repurpose this. You know, that's a, that's a new popular word. They didn't repurpose the ark. You know, hey, this will make some really it's back wall, man. Go for wood with a cross. You know, that, wouldn't that be awesome? Um, they didn't do that. They also didn't go, hey, man, we, we got this, this pitch. It'll burn for a long time, man. We got firewood for, you know, God didn't allow them to do that. Why? Why did the ark stay on a mountaintop? In fact, why was it pitched within and without? Now, it was pitched on the outside. I can understand, right? It's waterproofing it. Pitch on the inside. What's the deal? Well, I think it's quite possible that the Lord wanted to preserve the ark down through all those centuries, down through all the years, and that I do believe that God is going to allow it to be discovered. Undisputable, this is Noah's Ark, uh, once more prior to his next judgment. This is my personal belief. Now, wouldn't that be cool? 
if that happened in our lifetime, if all of a sudden, so they, you know, the, the National Geographic thing did a, did a show and there's Noah's Ark, we found it, it's definitely the Ark, you know, look at us, you know, stuff. How many people would become believers? Wouldn't that be exciting? I don't think many people would become believers. I think there would be a few skeptics that might be convinced, but I don't think that's why God would do that. Why do I say that? You know, Jesus tells a story in Luke, it's not a story, it's an actual happened in Luke 16, about a rich man that died, and, he had a, and there was a poor man that died as well, his name was Lazarus, and they both died and they were in Hades in the Old Testament there, that's another Bible study, won't go into that, but he describes this in Luke 16 verse 27, he says, then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, so this is the rich man, he's speaking to Father Abraham there, you know, he's been tormented, he says, can you have, because Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham, the rich man's on the other side of, of Hades, and he's in torment. And he's like, have him dip you know, some water and, and quench, you know, just on my tongue. I'm, and, and Abraham basically says, you know, hey, there's a gap between us. We, we can't do that. So finally, the rich man says to, to Abraham there in Luke 16, 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And I think it's the same thing. I think if Noah's Ark was discovered and it's like irrefutable proof, this is Noah's Ark. I don't think those that are atheists or those that are just total skeptic, you know, their, their hearts are so hardened. I don't think it would change them. So why would God do it? I think it'd be a testimony, a testimony to them, to those that reject Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible tells us during the great tribulation, of course, there's going to be mighty acts of God, uh, judgment on this world, but there's also describes an angel flying through the heavens preaching the gospel. I mean, an a- there, whew, there goes an angel, you know, there goes again, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus during the tri- great tribulation. But you know what the Bible says people do? They shake their fists at God. They don't care. Their hearts are so hardened. So I don't think, I think it'd be awesome. And for me, it would be really, really cool um, to, to have that, you know, irrefutable proof, you know, be able to look at it, maybe even, you know, if you go over a visit or see it or whatever, they have the arc tour, you know, bring it around and whatever they do. Um, but I don't think that would change the hearts of a lot of people necessarily. Speaking of the flood, you know, it's interesting. And it's like, why are you spending so much time here? You're kind of slowing down. We're kind of just working our way through this. Um, I think this is an important passage of scripture, even though, you know, it's typically like it's considered a children's story, right? You got the little Noah's Ark with the cute little figures and everything. And this little chubby Noah with a big beard and all this stuff. And, and uh, um, this story is so maligned by unbelievers, you know, they, they just don't care. And it's, it's just like, it's so ridiculous. How could a flood, how could waters cover the whole earth? How, how could the animals come from, how could an, a kangaroo from Australia get on an ark in the Middle East and stuff? And so they, they have all these arguments, you know, which we could go through one by one. And, and, and really, I think we could throw each one of those arguments down. But it's such uh, uh, a maligned and an unbelief story. And yet it, it's true. And... Uh, Here's something that I think is fascinating. Not only is the flood of Noah substantiated biblically, 
but even extra biblically outside of the Bible. Um, Dr. Henry Morris gathered, uh, he went and he discovered, well, you've probably heard of this too, but there's over 200 flood legends in all the different cultures and all these different nations around the planet. Almost every, every culture has a flood, a flood legend. In the Middle East, the Middle Eastern countries do. South American countries do. The Pacific Islanders have a flood legend. China has a flood legend. India has a flood legend. Even the Native Americans like the Cherokee. My wife's from the Cherokee tribe. Even from her tribe, um, there's, there's uh, um, uh, flood legends. Did you know that? Maybe you didn't know that. <laughs> Um, the Persians, of course, that's Middle East, but the Aztecs, the Incas, all these different cultures have a flood legend or a flood myth. People say, well, it's a myth. But you know what a myth is? I like this quote. A myth is a faded memory of a real event. A myth is a faded memory of a real event. So what Dr. Henry Morris did is he researched these over 200 flood legends that are not in the Bible, but they're just written. Um, and he started gathering together, and he did some statistics. And listen to these statistics. Of all these various global flood legends, 88% of them describe a favored family as part of this flood legend. 66% of them uh, mention that, they're, that the, the, these, this family is, is forewarned about this flood. 66% of these legends say the flood was due to man's wickedness. 95% of these legends only describe a flood. It's not like, it's not like a flood and an earthquake or a flood and a meteorite. You know, it's, just, it's a flood. 95% um, of these flood legends say it was a global flood. The entire earth was covered. 70% of these legends uh, describe survival by boat. 67% of these legends say that animals are saved. 73% of these legends, animals are at least involved. 57% of these legends, the survivors land on a mountain. 35% of the legends, a bird is sent out or birds are sent out. 7%, which is kind of a lower percentage, but a rainbow was involved. 13% survivors offer sacrifices and 9%, eight persons are saved. Interesting, extra biblical, and yet so many of them. And it's interesting. I was reading uh, a, a book by Alfred uh, Edersheim, and uh, he was describing how the Babylonian. There's one Babylonian account, and it's he says as you read it, it's almost like you're reading verses out of the Bible because it sounds so similar, and yet it's a Babylonian account of a global flood. Fascinating. So it's it is substantiated. Well, how many animals left the ark, right? We know two by two went in, and then seven of the unclean, seven of the clean birds. You know, we, we know that generally how many, well, we don't know an exact number, but we know generally uh, what animals went into the ark. How many animals left the ark? Um, you know, we're not told if Noah had, if well, I don't think Noah was 600 years old when the flood subsided, so I don't think he would have necessarily, but his son's, and sons' wives, there's no mention if they had children on the ark. They were on there for over a year. So did they have children on the ark? I don't know. What about the animals, though? You know, it's interesting. There, it says, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. I've got to think, I wonder how many bunnies left the ark, you know? 
How many mice left the ark? You, you know, you got to wonder. Scripture doesn't tell us, but you know what I can say safely say? Of the male and female of each kind that went into the ark, they all came out. I mean, they had to have, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have kangaroos today. We wouldn't have, you know, there are certain species we wouldn't have today. We know that of those that went into the ark, all those that went into the ark, they all came out. And they probably came out with children, but they definitely, those came out. Um, it's a good thing goldfish weren't around the ark, because that would have been a, that would have been tough. I don't know. We've always had, you know, with our kids, we had goldfish, and it's like, you just, they all, every, after a while, every one of them takes the swim down to the sewer plant, treatment plant in the sky, you know, but anyways. Um, I mentioned earlier that the ark is a type of Christ. Think about this. Of all the animals that went into the ark, none of them died. None of them were lost. They were all kept there. Jesus said in John six thirty nine, this is the will of the Father who sent me that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. If you give your heart to Jesus Christ this morning, or if you've already given your heart to Jesus Christ, you will be risen. You will, you will spend eternity with him. It's a guarantee. He's going to do it. Jesus will never cast you out. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And no one else is able to cast you out. Listen to John 10, 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. All those animals that went, they all came out. All the people that went, they all came out. God kept them safe. You go to Jesus, you enter into a relationship with the Lord, you're safe. You're safe. Well, let's continue on here. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, remember that God told Noah to bring seven of these unclean or the clean birds and of, you know, these animals onto the ark, clean animals onto the ark. It doesn't say that he told him why, um, but it's interesting, God didn't command Noah to build an altar. There's no command. Now I want you to take one of those and sacrifice it to me. Um, it's almost like God anticipated that Noah would do this at the end of the flood. And, of course, if you just had a male and a female, you sacrifice one, then they're, 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 that's going to be an extinct species, right? Um, so it's almost like God anticipated that Noah would do that. Now, I have a disclaimer to make. I don't know how many of you have seen that Noah's Ark movie, that, the one that came out a few years back, you know, with like the mud monsters or something. I, I don't know. I never saw the movie. So uh, so when I start describing this, don't say, well, that wasn't in the movie. But you know when Hollywood makes a movie, okay? I think the Ten Commandments or some other movies, they take a biblical, you know, a biblical story and they make a movie out of it. Um, if they had the scene, and again, I hadn't seen that movie, so maybe, I, I don't know. But if they had that scene where, you know, the animals and no other going into the ark and then the door is shut and the rains start, if I was a Hollywood producer, you know what I would do? I'd have a scene showing all these people, you know, drowning and, you know, all the, the, the screams and everything. Remember in the Ten Commandments when uh, the Passover, when the angel of death, you know, you heard all these screams and the Hebrews are in their house and they're hearing all the screams. And, they, you know, that's Hollywood, right? They would have they just 
you would you would have had a scene showing people clawing on the ark or screaming and you know people dying and all these innocent animals you know drowning and stuff it'd be very graphic and very dramatic why because action captivates an audience right Um, otherwise it'd be a boring movie but notice the bible doesn't make any mention once the ark's closed and the rains happen the bible doesn't make any mention of the struggles of the wicked when the flood begins, we're not given a description of the cries of despair or, you know, that, you know, this happened with it. You know, why? Why? I'll tell you why. It's because God does not take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in that. It wasn't like God's like, ha, 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 look what happens now. You know, there's no mention of the death of the wicked in there. They're gone. They're just gone. You know, now the Bible doesn't mention anything, but you got to wonder, did Noah hear stuff did Noah hear you know screaming or did no did people pounding on the door let us in let us in Noah and you know God's the one that shut the door uh, you know did Noah hear those did he and his family hear all this stuff going on around him we don't know now we do know and I mentioned it last week when we talked about the the construction of the ark that it was designed it seems like it was designed to withstand huge waves of up to about 100 feet which suggests if that's true that it was designed, God anticipated that it would endure some very rough and very high seas during the storm, during the flood, when it was actually having all the, the, the water coming out of the ground and the, you know, just can you imagine the undulation and everything that that ark would have to endure? And yet God preserved them through the flood. So God hears all this, no- or Noah hears all this noise, maybe, and he hears all this noise of the, of the, of the wicked dying around him. And then the storm is so tumultuous. And uh, <clears throat> I can imagine... If you're hitting, if you're coming up to a a, a hundred foot wave, and and by the way, uh, they said that this arc was designed where it could actually almost take a ninety degree angle and not capsize and come back. So if you can imagine, you're in a boat, and have you ever been in a boat? You're at a like about a ninety. I've never been at a ninety degree on a on a boat, but I got loud also because I'm getting close. <laughs> but you know, if you can imagine how f- scary that must have been, being in something like that. And you're just sitting there and you're writing it out. And then finally, and God preserved you through that. You've been saved from that. And then God says, okay, Noah, you're finally, you're resting. You know, it's been a long time, but you're sitting on this, on this mountain. Of course, maybe you don't even know you're on a mountain, but you're sitting on dry land. And then God says, okay, go out of the ark. And I can imagine, this is just me, but I imagine Noah was the last person to leave the ark. It's like the, the captain always is the last to leave the ship, right? But I, but I imagine that was Noah, you know? Okay, let's get, let's get all the animals out. And so he's, they're, they're herding the animals out. The animals are going out. A bird's probably just flew out the window. I mean, they probably didn't walk out or anything like that. Um, and, then, and then, you know, Noah's sons, and okay, you guys, you guys go, go out. And then finally, Mrs. Noah, you know, you know beauty for, before age or whatever, you know, you go first and, you know, let his wife. And I can imagine, this is just me, but I can imagine as they're walking out, they're like, Noah, what are you doing? I'll be right with you. And I can just imagine him sitting there in the ark. Just, I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but. Listen, he spent, he spent 120 years building this thing, 120 years of sweat and blood and all the, uh, you know, the, the people making fun of him and all that. And then he's saved. His family is safe. <clears throat> Excuse me. His family is safe. All these animals are saved. And uh, 
I can just imagine Noah's just like this empty ship and he's just like looking around and just going, wow. You know why I say that? Because I've done that. Seriously, not on an ark. <laughs> when my wife leaves, I'm like, no, one is. no, that's not true. <clears throat> no, but you know, sometimes we started this church as a Bible study and uh, man, God just blessed us. And uh, we, you know, we were meeting in different hotels. We met in Dan and Tracy's house for a long time and different places. And, and then finally, the Lord blessed us with a building. And it was a very humble building. Those of you that were in the, the church there on, you know, on, on Second Street, it's a very humble beginning. But it was our home. It was our, I mean, this, this wow, Lord, I can't believe you gave this to us. It was beautiful. And uh, there have been many times over the years when after Sunday or a Wednesday night, and I'm the last guy there to close it up, and maybe even we drove separately sometimes, and Teresa's gone home, and I'll just sit in there and go, Lord, I can't, I can't believe you did this. This is such an awesome thing. Thank you for blessing us, Lord. And I'll tell you, I've done that here several times. You guys leave, and I'm the last one here, and I'm, I'm the last one because you got to close the light, turn off the lights back here, and then kind of work. hopefully you don't trip over anything and make it out and stuff. And sometimes I'll be in here, and it's just silent, and, and it's just me and the Lord. And I'll just, I'll dwell here. I'll just like, I just want to sit here for a while and just kind of, and a lot of times I have this, just this, this time with me and the Lord. It's a time of thankfulness. <clears throat> it's a time of amazement. God would use a loser like me. <laughs> and it's a time of blessing. It's like, wow, Lord, you just really blessed us. You know, times like that, where I'm mentioning it's where you build an altar in your heart. Right? You just sit down with the Lord. You just start worshiping him. Now, I'll be honest with you. It doesn't happen every Sunday and every Wednesday. Okay, you guys leave. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this time with me and the Lord. But it does happen. And it's a very special time. And, and just the Lord and I know about it. Well, you now, now you know about it. I haven't even told my wife about it, but now you guys know about it. But it's a very special, intimate time. I want to encourage you. Do you ever have those times, an intimate time where it's just you and the Lord, and, it, and it's nobody else, it's just you and the Lord, and it's a special time where you're just building an altar to him, you're thanking him, you're, you're just, um, just dwelling in his presence. I want to encourage you to develop that in your life, because that's what Noah did. That's, I, th I think that's why he burnt that, all, that he burnt that I, God didn't command him to. I think he was just so overwhelmed with, oh, God, you did it, you saved us. And now we, we have this, Lord, what a blessing. Thank you so much. And I think he just spent a few moments, just, just him and the Lord. And, uh, and so he burnt, he burnt this uh, sacrifice, this burnt offering. What is the burnt offering? Of all the offerings that, were offered, that the children of Israel were later on, they'd be commanded to offer. God didn't command them to offer this, for at least we don't read that. The burnt offering was the one offering that was totally consumed on the fire. You know, they had the peace offering. Later on, there'd be a peace offering where, where the, the person making the sacrifice and, of course, and the Lord, they, they would share it, right? You, you'd take a piece of that, and it, it'd be like communion, having communion with one another, and that, that's the peace offering. But the burnt offering was just completely consumed on the fire. Nothing was left over. Nothing was held back. Nothing is shared with anybody. It's completely given over to the Lord. And I, I could just imagine Noah's heart, man, Lord, uh, my life is yours, man. I, I just I just completely surrender to you. 
Here Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants you and I to offer ourselves completely unreserved to him. Completely, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't want to share my heart with anybody else. I don't want to worship anything else. Or, Lord, it's completely given to you. Paul describes himself as the drink offering. You know, a, a drink offering. It was offered at the time of the burnt offering. You basically took drink, the, the liquid and you just poured it on the altar. And the, the altar is burning and hot. And the, the, it just the, you know, have you ever poured water in a frying pan when it's really hot? It's like, it's just the water disappears. Right? It vaporizes right before your eyes. And uh, hopefully you don't get burned at the same time. But, you know, but that's what the drink offering is. just completely vaporized. And Paul says, man, I am just completely vaporized for the Lord. I just, everything, Lord, just pour it out for you. God wants that in our lives. He's not going to command you to do that. He's not going to say, okay, I want you to completely just sacrifice everything for me, or not sacrifice, but, you know, just surrender everything. But he wants that. He desires that in each one of us. This is exactly what Noah did. I don't think he was told to do it. I think he just wanted to do it. And look what happens, verse 21 and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Now, I like barbecue. I mean, and so I always think, well, the Lord just likes the smell of barbecue. But, you know, it's not just the smell of burning flesh on, the, on, a, on a fire, which is cool. I think I like the smell of it. But the Lord loved what was going on in Noah's heart. And that was a soothing aroma to him. The sacrifice, the, the complete consecration to the Lord. So it says, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of his man's heart is evil from his, of his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. He says, I'm not going to do this again, even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's God's grace and God's mercy. Because, you know, God destroyed all the wicked people from off the earth, but sin was still present. Because Adam was, or Noah was a sinner. His sons were all sinners. In fact, Noah's otherwise sterling reputation in the Bible, and when we get to chapter 9 next week, it's going to be marred by sin. Why? Because he's a sinner. And we're going to unfortunately read something about him that's not so good. And we're going to read about Ham and his son Canaan in chapter 9. And so God didn't, you know, he didn't, he, 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 he destroyed the wicked people from off the earth, but he didn't destroy sin at that point. That would happen at the cross. But he says, I'm not going to destroy the world this way, even though the imagination of man's heart is only evil continually. The imagination, what does that mean? It, it literally means man's form or framework. It's like what you're made of. It, man's purpose. How you, you know, man's purpose is, is only evil. Man's imagination, man, just our thoughts. You know, Jesus Christ has set you and I free from the penalty of sin, right? We've entered into that ark. We're saved. We're, we're not going to pass under God's judgment because of the blood of Jesus Christ because Jesus suffered for us on the cross. He paid the penalty, right? So we've been freed from the penalty of sin. Not only that, but you and I as believers, and tonight with when we talk about the Holy Spirit, this is a big part of it, we've also been freed from the power of sin. Sin no longer has power on your life. It doesn't have to. You don't have to have, you're, you're not a slave to sin anymore, okay? Um, so we've been freed from the penalty and the power of the sin. But you know what? We still have that stinking, rotten uh, presence of sin, right? 
I mean, even, you know, I read the Bible or spending time with the Lord, and my thoughts can go off in a, in a different direction. And it's just like, I, I can't wait to the day when I am before the Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of sin is gone. When, I, when I'm worshiping him finally and it's no longer, you know, a, a mixed heart or, or, you know, I'm just somewhat submitted to the Lord. It's like the sin is gone. That, that's going to happen. We will be freed from that, from the presence of sin. Right now, we're freed from the, from the penalty and the power, but we still have the presence of the sin. Why? Because we're sinful flesh. But there is one day he's going to set us free from the presence of sin. That's going to be such a blessing. Verse 22, we'll finish up here. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, a lot of people believe that there was this moderate temperature on the earth prior to the flood. Um, but now there's going to be cold and there's going to be heat. And if you're in Minnesota, it's going to be extreme cold or extreme heat necessarily, right? And winter and harvest. You know, the thing about that, one thing you can depend on, right? Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. I mean, Dan plants corn in the or corn or, or hay or whatever, you know, he... he he reaps it, right? Beans, whatever it is. You plant it, you're going to reap it. Now, that can be both good and bad, right? If you're, pl- if you're planting good stuff, you're going to get good stuff back. But the Bible also says we reap what we sow. So if you're planting, if you're sowing to the flesh, you're going to reap. You're going to reap destruction. You're going to reap consequences of that. So it can be both good and bad. But even in Minnesota, now, this, you know, we've been, we've had this, what, this break in the weather, you know, I've seen so many motorcycles out. I know Luke's had his bike out um, yesterday. I actually rode her here today to church and stuff. And it's like, it's, <clears throat> I think we've been kind of lulled into a false sense of spring. <laughs> it's like, woohoo, get the t-shirts out and, you know, let's get the swimming pool, you know, go. It, it's, I think it's not going to last. Um, I'm, for, I, I'm sorry, I'm the bearer of bad news. But, um, but you know what? After a long, cold winter, sooner or later, it's going to get warm, right? You know, sooner or later, summer's going to be here. Faithfully, wouldn't it be terrible if we went from winter to winter <laughs> to winter to everybody the Book of Narnia, right? The line, that, yeah, the snowblower, snowblower, snow mobilers, <laughs> not the snowblowers. <laughs> Their thumbs up, right? Like winter, go on. Of course, I like riding motorcycles, so summers, you know, would be the same. <laughs> but you know, sooner or later, you know, the things are going to change. You're going to, you're, you're going to sooner or later, if, if you hate the heat and the humidity, which a lot of people do in the, in the summer, sooner or later, man, fall comes you know, and it faithful every year, sooner or later, it's going to cool down. Or, or if you hate the cold sooner or later, it's going to warm up. Um, you can say it about each one of these things. Winter follows uh, summer uh, day and night, you know, change is going to come. God's faithful. Listen, right now, you might be going through a difficult time right now. You might be going through a night or a winter in your life right now. Things are just terrible for you. They're falling apart. The Bible says weeping may endure for a night, for a night but joy comes in the morning. God's faithful. He's faithful. And uh, we don't go from winter to winter or night to night. You know, after winter, summer is around the bend. Why? Because God's faithful. And uh, he's faithful in spite of us. Isn't that awesome? Well, God's faithful. And I just want you to trust in him. You know, if God for so many thousands of years now has faithfully brought, you know, the seasons, 
faithfully brought the nighttime, the warm, the cold, and everything. He's done it faithfully. Do you think you can trust him with your life today? To be faithful in your life and in your situation? You can. Joy will come in the morning. I want to bless you with that. So why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And uh, thank you for uh, just the story of Noah. Lord, just to read this and to just reflect on it. And Lord, I pray that you might have encouraged us this, this morning. Lord, I, I thank you. Um, I, uh, I just pray for each person here, Lord. Lord, I pray that they might find that time and that place where they would develop that time of just, just you and them, just alone, where they will build an altar to you and just offer their, themselves as a living sacrifice to you, Lord God. Father, I just I pray for each one. I pray your blessings upon them, upon their marriages, upon their finances, their families, their children, Lord, on their on their jobs. Lord, I just pray your blessings upon your people. And I thank you for each and every person here today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.